is a Boardwalk Audio podcast. Uh, hey guys, um, I'm going to drop this in right here because I forgot to do it at the top of the episode. We just kind of jumped right into talking to our guest this week, who is George Azunian. And he is a, a satirist, an internet personality, a New York Times bestselling author. Uh, it's a little bit different than our typical guest, which is a sketch comedian. This is just a different type of comedic writer. And we're going to do these occasionally uh, just to kind of try something different. So this week it's George Azunian, and I hope you guys and gals and whoever else enjoy it. Uh, 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 check it. You are now tuned in to Fish at the Water, where comedians learn from forerunners and give honor. Tweety and Jeremiah mix it up like honor bombers, making sure everybody leaves educated like scholars. This is Fish Out of Water. This is Fish Out of Water. Hey, everybody. Welcome to Fish Out of Water. I'm Ryan. And I am Jeremiah. And uh, today we have um, a very special guest, someone that I've known for quite a few years. Um, he's been around the UCB community. He's written, um, a New York times bestseller. He's got a super, um, a popular, uh, um, website. God, I'm so bad at the words website, uh, YouTube page podcast. He's an empire in himself. George. Ozunian. Ozunian. Yeah. You didn't, I'm not even going to give you a partial credit for that. You didn't even start. I had to come in and save you. Because all I was doing was George Oz. I was like, George Oz. <laughs> Listen, this isn't the first time Tweety's fucked up a last name. It's pretty consistent. <laughs> yeah. So he's keeping with the tradition of not being able to say someone's last name. Yeah, I'm not a yeah. good I'm not good with names. T- intros in general sort of aren't my thing. Yeah. yeah. No, uh well thanks for having me guys. Yeah, yeah. dude, thanks for doing Thank it, man. This is great. Here. Yeah. Um so I guess where do we start? Let's start with let's start with George Azunian, the yeah. person. Sure. Yeah. Uh, born of Utah. Utah. Yeah. Born and raised. Yeah. yeah I lived there for quite a while. Uh, went to the University of Utah and finally, finally escaped. Got out of it. Mm-hmm. You know, I so on my very first book tour, I've always been kind of critical of Utah. And uh, my very first book tour, I thought, wow, this is it. I have an audience. I'm standing here at a at a, a pulpit, and I have an opportunity to shit on utah and i did and it and the audience got kind of quiet and that's when i realized like people like where they live don't shit on it that's, that's the thing. I, I thought oh i'm the minority here i just hate this place i always have i always hated it um is there a reason a specific reason you've hated it yeah you know just the you know the the culture the the uh, you you feel very ostracized if you're not part of the the main culture in the in the state yeah um there's not much to do uh, the food kind of sucks. There's good food in Utah for sure. One thing that's there are a few bright spots in Utah though. The coffee culture is amazing. Wow. Really, some Didn't of the best coffee shops I've ever been to in the world are in Salt Lake City. They have a huge salt, and, and Salt Lake is really weird because they have great um, microbreweries too. And you wouldn't think that because I, they no, don't drink. They don't drink because they don't yeah. drink. But because they're so rare, the ones that exist are born out of pure passion. And oh a, yeah, yeah. So one of the guys yeah. down there, there's this amazing brew pub. If you're ever passing through Salt Lake City, go to the Bayou on State Street. It's okay. just an amazing brew pub. This guy is a is a real beer nerd, and he will import every type of beer from all around the world once a week or once a month, something like that. And he'll have a big, you know, little party for uh, mm-hmm. um, for people who like beer, and they come down and do taste tests and stuff like that. So because Salt Lake has is such a um, Salt Lake is very liberal, but it's surrounded by so much conservatism, so it makes it the liberal Salt Lake way more intense. Uh, just to be, they have to be louder and prouder just yeah. to stick out. That's how Nebraska is too. Yeah, where I'm from is very. Uh, it's Omaha and Lincoln because it's a college town. Yeah, blue. Everything else is like 
nobody voted for Bush harder. Yeah, yeah. Than the rest of the state. I got that sense. Yeah, yeah. Uh, so you went to college there, and I was reading you were a math guy. Yeah, yeah. Okay, I got I got my degree in engineering. Oh hell yeah, I, dude! Before I left, um, I wish I would have left earlier. But uh, did you graduate with a degree or no? No. Yeah. I did not. I finished the curriculum, and I'm one test away from graduating. Oh. Uh, and I've, I, you know, I've told the story before, but I've, I've taken that test. The first time I took the test, I came within one point of passing. Mm-hmm. Uh, it was the advanced math portion of the GRE. And the second time I took it, I came within two points of passing. And the third time I took the test, I came within three points of passing. And so because I'm a math major, I can see, you know, patterns. <laughs> yes. right, right. I thought, you know, yeah. fuck it. At this point in my life, I was just starting to focus entirely on my writing career. Mm-hmm. And I thought, uh, you know, I I'm, it, I think I got the book deal right around the time that I I quit. And I thought, it, I at this point, if I have a successful book career, a writing career, I think it speaks that much more if I'm technically a dropout. And so I don't mm. think I'll ever go back and get that degree because I think it's a statement. Like, okay, I did yeah. this, but mm-hmm. I, without the degree. Right. So how does yeah. a math guy turn into a comedian? <laughs> you know what I'm saying? Like, yeah. They're very uh, far apart. Did, was your family very – were they technical math people as well, like uh, mm. mother, father? Or, no, my no? dad My dad was always very much in the in favor of math. He always told me math is the backbone of the universe. And, uh, you know – he, but he he didn't do anything technical like that, and neither did my mom. I chose math because I was in computer science for a while and got disenchanted with the computer science program at the University of Utah because it was so stupid. Um, <laughs> the requirements were ridiculous. Everyone was trying to get in, com, into computer science, and my grades were suffering at the time because I was working 60 to 80 hours per week at a telemarketing company um, as a developer. So I was already doing the job that I was going to school to learn to do. <laughs> and so I, I set up a meeting with a dean. It took him nine months to reply to my email. Oh, and sure. finally, when I, sh- when I set up the meeting, I walk into his room, and he was sh- shutting off the lights and grabbing his jacket to go home. I said, oh, hey, um, we, had a, we had a meeting. He goes, oh, yeah, yeah, sure. I'm like, okay. <laughs> so I sat down and started talking to him. I said, look. I my grades aren't there right now because I'm working these crazy long hours and I don't have time to really commit uh, as much as I should to my grades. I mean, they weren't bad. There was like a three point four, three point two, something like that. That's what I graduated with. Yeah, yeah. yeah those I was like, that's this a is, very that's B plus. That's a, yeah, that's great. I'm happy with a B plus. I'm like, yeah. that's the best I've ever done in my life. Are you kidding me? And so I I said I'm working really hard at this work at this job programming. And um, and I, I'm interested if you can waive some of these requirements to get into the program because I, I can do the work. It's just every other class is dragging me down, like these physics classes and these weird like electives that I'm, I'm I, you know, I don't want to take. And then he said, you know what? You could switch to computer engineering because computer engineers make a lot of money. And that pissed me off so much because I was going to college because I believed the fucking – I believed the lie – that you're supposed to go and enrich yourself. Mm-hmm. You're supposed to go and you're learning things that, that you're not, right. you know, that are outside your your scope. And I was taking all sorts of interesting classes and stuff. And here this guy was telling me that I should switch degrees to make more money. When I was already making more money than most of the professors at that college, at that university. Mm-hmm. I was making more money than the, the, the people teaching me <laughs> how to do my job. Right. And it wasn't so, about the money. It was no, about the I was, creative yeah. So I was pissed. Right? I, I yeah. decided, you know what? Um, I'm done with this. I'm going to go. I'm switching majors. And I switched to math right yeah. after that. Yeah. Wow. Cool. Yeah. yeah, it was weird. Uh, 
for my my family's my dad was a uh, applied mathematician as well, uh-huh. and then got his. Uh, well, he was a physicist first. I guess that was his four-year degree was in physics and then got his PhD in applied mathematics. And so I was always, you know, like my dad, I wanted to impress him. So I did engineering, got my master's in biomedical engineering. And it was such a weird shift coming out here to L.A. Be like, yeah, I want to be a comedian. And then like, what's your day job? And I tell people like, well, you're never going to make more money doing comedy than what you're doing now and i'm like well that's not the point right yeah yeah it's not always about money guys yeah Uh, that's money is money has been the least um the least powerful motivator in my life i've never done things for just for money uh if i if i wanted to i would have had ads on my website right which I've, i've given up a lot of money not to have ads on my website. Thank People, God. I yeah. fucking hate ads. Yeah, they slow down <laughs> websites too. Well, there's so much it changes yeah. about your content once you once you free yourself from the the lure and temptations of advertising. Uh, advertising is is a mixed blessing. Obviously, it pays for pays the bills. Right. But on the other hand, it's it it makes it so that you might have to kowtow to the advertisers. Right. Uh, you know, there's always that temptation, that pressure to do that in the back of your mind. People are like, well, why don't you just not do that i said well of course of course you could always not do that but it's a temptation that i don't want you mm-hmm. know it's like why wouldn't you why would you have cocaine in your house well just don't do it <laughs> <laughs> okay great well why not just get rid of the cocaine i don't want it right it's a liability i don't want that shit. you don't want it yeah. waving in front of your face yeah yeah but uh you know what's interesting is a lot of i feel like a lot of comedians there are some some really famous ones who have math and technical backgrounds. Most mm. of the writers for Futurama, uh, I think Matt Stone or Trey Parker, one of the two, was a math major at the University of Colorado. Interesting. Wow. Yeah. yeah. So you you do see some of that. He's a DNA scientist. He always says DNA scientist. Yeah. Wow. That's I don't so know cool. what that means. Yeah. So I mean, I don't know what it actually is. Mm-hmm. I met I met a guy. Uh, he worked in in biology he was like a, a dna biology right mm-hmm. and i was at his party and uh we started throwing shade at each other because he was sitting there i kind of overheard part of his conversation where he's like yeah i need a i need a monitor that has really high resolution and i said what's your resolution at and he said something like uh you know three thousand by something i'm like bullshit you don't need resolution that high <laughs> he goes bullshit i do and i said what the fuck could you possibly need resolution that high for bro and he said well the spreadsheets that i open up I'm like bullshit show me these spreadsheets it goes fine bullshit and then he pulled up his spreadsheet and it was the most densely packed spreadsheet i've ever seen i'm like whoa hold on what the fuck are you doing here (laughs) he's like well i work for this uh this dna company and we're we're trying to find patterns in the sequences and stuff like that yeah and then we started going back and forth and he started telling me about his work and I, i i was very familiar with the tools he was using he uses this program called awk in Unix, AWK, mm-hmm. which is a great way to parse big sets of data. And I'm like, dude, I'm an awk master. <laughs> and he goes, he goes, bullshit. I'm like, oh, yeah? Pull up a prompt. I'll write you a script right now. He goes, okay, give me the first the first, fourth and fifth field uh, by, by sorted by name. I'm like, no problem. Popped it out. And he's like, holy shit, you know awk? I'm like, yeah, man. I'm seriously a legitimate pro at awk. This was all I used to do at my uh, at my at my old job. Yeah, I mean, you know, it's one of the one of the things that I used to do. So we started talking, and we wanted to work together. And I, for a hot minute, I I thought well, this could be my career. I could just start working with this <laughs> DNA company because uh, yeah. everything these guys were doing, they were looking for patterns and uh, you know different sequences and things. Right. Yeah. And everything they were doing. 
by hand, I could have automated for them mm. and written tools for them to find these patterns to free up their valuable re- time to do actual research and other right. things. And yeah. save people's lives. Yeah. Right. yeah. Yeah. I mean, we pay a lot of money to send data off to people who have written code like you. Dude, I'll do it. <laughs> so let me, so let what me, do you need? I'll do yeah, it. Yeah. So let me get this straight. You basically gave up the opportunity to save hundreds of thousands of people's lives so you could grade children's artwork. <laughs> this this was recently that I met okay. this guy at the party. And I actually told – I followed up with him. I'm like, look, dude, I'm serious about this. I this I enjoy doing this kind of stuff, you know, parsing huge, huge sets of data. Because that's all I used to do at a telemarketing company. We'd get these databases of like 6 to 8 million people, mm-hmm. you know, or maybe like 30 million uh, uh, customers or contacts. And we'd have to go through them and find – certain set, certain bits, bits and pieces of data you know take out everyone from this area of code and, and vice versa mm-hmm. and so on um so that's my that was my bread and butter i'm good at that yeah uh, you, you know and i'm totally serious if you want to send me some of that stuff <laughs> i'll i'll crunch through that shit like you wouldn't believe man cool yeah i'm i'm trying to get away from that field <laughs> uh but i love it it's yeah fun. it's it's uh the the job is fun but it's you know i would rather i would rather write more i guess that's yeah. kind of yeah. what i'm going towards which is and so ultimately what you did is what jeremiah is trying to become probably what a lot of people what i'm well except i don't do science I don't do science, but everything else. And I think there's probably a lot of people. That, so what is – how did you then go from all that to getting your – your first book was Alphabet of Manliness, correct? Yes. And that was the New York Times bestseller, correct? Correct, yeah. How do you go – what's that process? Like what was from, – from idea generation to like I want to make this book, whatever that inkling was, to then making it, to then getting it published, to then selling it, to then – being a New York Times bestseller to being yeah, there's a lot of steps there. There's a lot of steps yeah. there. Yeah, can you can you run us through that so sure. maybe someone can follow your well here's here's follow the paradigm that yeah. is George. Yeah, here's here's where here's where I came from. Here's the whole background for where I got started from and how I built my following. Okay, I had this web space on my old internet service provider's um, website, my account that I created in 1995. I just needed an internet connection. And the internet service provider is called X-Mission in Utah. And I'm still with them today. I've been with them, what, what's it now, uh, over 20 or 21 years I've been with wow. them. Wow. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Same account, same, you know, same email address. I've had, my email address is 21 years old. Wow. Uh, so along with my email address and my internet service, they said, okay, we're going to give you a little bit of free web hosting just for your personal page. And I took that personal page and I created the best page in the universe. And I started throwing grants on there because... People online on IRC liked when I would bitch about things. So I thought, you know what? I'm going to take some of these What's grants. IRC? IRC is Internet Relay Chat. Okay. Oh, yeah. I totally took for granted that people don't know what IRC is anymore. IRC is Internet Relay Chat. And basically, it's kind of like a real-time Twitter. So on Twitter, you have hashtags that, that you denote your status updates with mm-hmm. uh, for different topics that you talk about. In IRC, you join a hashtag channel. And so if you want to talk about sports, you would join hashtag sports. Okay. Or you would talk about video games. It would be hashtag video games. I wanted to talk about coding, programming, right? So I would join hashtag coders. And that's where I hung out with these guys. These, like, really, really smart nerds. A lot of them have gone on to work in video game companies and all sorts of crazy stuff. Is this still able to do that today? You can still do you it still today, do yeah. RC, right? Yeah, I okay. still have an IRC channel. So I created this website, and it became um, popular on this little channel, but it was only being read by like five or ten people per month. But that's all it took to keep me going. I thought, oh, my gosh, wow, this is amazing that five or ten people care about what I have to say. 
And that kept me going. I kept writing article after article. Slowly over time, that was back in 96, 97. Slowly over time, uh, my site went from a few visitors per month to 20 per day to about 200 per day. Then I, I had a huge breakthrough. One morning I woke up and I checked my inbox and I had hundreds of emails from people saying, oh my gosh, Maddox, uh, there's a radio show called The Don and Mike Show that talked about you. Oh, thought, wow. Holy hmm. shit. Don and Mike, these guys were my idols. Yeah. I knew exactly who they were because I listened to them all the time. They were my favorite talk show of all time. I love these guys. And they were the, – my heroes were, th- were talking about me. And I thought, oh, my gosh, I got to track down this recording because they stopped yeah. broadcasting in Utah, unfortunately. But I thought, well, maybe they just mentioned it casually. Turns out they spent an entire half-hour segment talking about my website. And it blew up. My website went from a few hundred per day to a few thousand visitors per day. And I thought, oh, wow. wow. How did they find out about it? Um, I guess someone sent them an article of mine. Uh, you know, it just kind of blew up that way. Oh, wow. Um, so then I they contacted me. And they said, look, we'd like to have you on the show. Why don't you write an original piece? And we'll, you, can, you can read it on our show for the first time. The piece that I wrote for them is called I Am Better Than Your Kids. Oh, that's, <laughs> yeah. That's great. Yes. That's where I graded children's artwork, yeah. um, gave them Fs, and <laughs> that piece went super viral. That was and yeah. it wasn't it wasn't on the radio show like on the radio show it did fine but a couple months after somebody took it and put it in a word document and started forwarding it to people yeah mm-hmm. that's how I that, that's how I saw it yeah. yeah like my family knew it knew of it and this is in Nebraska so uh-huh. this is several states away my nieces ten years younger than us know about it like that it still gets people still you know it's still yeah in the, the yeah of, it went uh, super super viral and to the point where. Um, people would send it back to me, and I would, t- I would reply to them and say, yeah, I know. I wrote this. Uh, this, is, this is, yeah, thanks for sending this to me. But um, So my website, went when that went viral, it went from a few thousand hits per day to millions overnight. And that's when I started getting contacts from all sorts of people in Hollywood and producers and directors and agents. And everybody under the sun wanted to talk to me, um, people at Fox and uh, – uh, what's his name? Uh, Daniel Kellison, I think. That's the guy who did uh, uh, Crank Anchors and The Man oh, Show. Oh, wow. Yeah. Mm. Like, everybody was talking to me. MTV. MTV even reached out to me. They said, hey, um, uh, Maddox, you know, Maddox, right. my, my pseudonym, said, hey, Maddox, uh, we know we know you hate us, but we still want to talk to you. <laughs> <laughs> so uh, it was a really fascinating time. So I kept the website going for a while and still going um, for a couple of years. And then finally, uh, around 2004, I got an email from an editor in New York who said, hey, you want to write a book? And I said, yes. And that was pretty much it. I signed a book deal and wrote my first book. The advance for that book was so tiny. It was $7,500. That's all I had. And the advance oh for a book was... Man, yeah. That's, that's real. That's, yeah. yeah. Oh, In yeah. the 90s, that was $400,000. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I well, mean, you hear about book deals now, people getting... What did Amy Schumer get recently? Wasn't that like a no big idea. one? Like a couple million bucks well the reason you hear about amy schumer and milo yiannopoulos or or milo yiannopoulos getting these huge book deals or hillary clinton or whatever it's because they're exceedingly rare Mm -hmm. um the average book deal is about five to ten thousand dollars especially for a first-time author and the advance people don't know people don't know this who've never written a book but the advance is given to you to complete the book so essentially if you have to take time off from work 
you have to live off that advance money. Mm-hmm. So seventy five hundred dollars is not a lot of money. Right. Um, that didn't even cover the expenses that I had to pay for the illustrators that I hired for the book. And that's the other thing. I thought once you get a publishing deal, you got it made, man. Right. I thought, wow, I, I'm a. I, I, this is a legit company. They're publishing my book. Nope. Uh, turns out that you, if if you don't produce it yourself, it doesn't go in the book. There's nothing that went into my books that I didn't physically like have to have to create myself. I had to find the illustrators myself. I had to give them detailed instructions page by page. For every one page in Alphabet of Manliness, there was three pages that didn't go into it. Three pages of writing that you know description on how to exactly draw the scene. Um, coordinating, making sure everything looked correctly. Anyway, I ended up spending more money than the advance just to produce that book. I went into debt right before that book came out. Uh, but that, yeah, that paid off. That book, uh, you know, I marketed the hell out of it, and uh, it debuted at on the New York Times bestseller list and got as high as number two. Oh wow! Yeah, that's great, man. Thanks. And then, and then you turn that into like a bunch of stuff. You have a YouTube channel. Mm-hmm. You've had several uh, podcasts. You've had. Didn't you do? You were you were on Pin and Teller. No, yeah, not, yeah, Pin and Teller. Pin Teller's bullshit. Yeah, yeah, that was pretty funny. I, saw, yeah. I watched that through the day. It had been a long time. That's and that was a whole. Was that a, a bit or was that? Oh man! So they contacted. <laughs> <laughs> oh, I can't wait Penn to hear Teller. this. <laughs> What's that? I said I can't wait to hear this. Yeah, so they, they contacted me and they said, "Hey, man, they've contacted me multiple times in the past. They're like, hey, we want to talk to you about Florida. We want to talk to you about um, what was it uh, nukes or something?'" And then they contacted me and they said, "We want to talk to you about old people." And I thought, okay, this is cool because I wrote this article on my website a long time ago saying I wanted to launch old people into space. I thought that would be that would be pretty. Um, neat and tidy can uh, can you know solution to old people to launch them right into the sun um and so they contacted me and i thought they were going to be on my side right yeah first of all they weren't the ones who were interviewing me at all they sent and sent out some line producers mm. and these guys you know they're all in like their 50s and 60s they sent a bunch of old people to interview me like wow this is gonna be real this is gonna be real fun and in the interview i said a lot of tongue-in-cheek things like basically what i just told you guys right. like let's launch old people into space and all this like crazy shit and old people smell and this and that but I thought I thought that they would follow up on that, and you know we would get to the heart of why you know my actual thesis about old people, which is this: um, old people get uh, favor they get favoritism in society just for the fact of being old, which is ageism. Uh, you shouldn't you shouldn't discriminate people for or against because of their age, their gender, their color, et cetera, et cetera. I said we do that with old people. But I think it's wrong because there's a lot of bad old people. If you plucked Saddam Hussein out of Iraq when he was still alive and, and put him down in the Midwest, someone might come by and give him a blanket, you know. But he's a fucking Saddam Hussein. Right. You don't know him, Robert Durst. Robert Durst killed his neighbor and and likely killed his ex-wife or girlfriend or whatever. Like, there's a lot of bad old people. We shouldn't just give them a free pass because they got to a certain age. Most bad people are old. Yeah. 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 That's how they got to be old. Kid, you know? Like, you know, I'm not defending kids. All right, I have a huge problem with kids, but the, 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 if you just take the number of murderers in society, the number of murderers who are kids are are drastically smaller compared to the number of old people. Yeah. So, so what did Penn and Teller do to you? Oh yeah. So, <laughs> so then they took this. They we we talked for about two hours. They they whittled down a two hour interview into I don't know like five six minutes that they used on the on the air, maybe a couple minutes. And they just blasted me and took a bunch of clips out of context. And I thought it was kind of shitty. 
Oh, they actually took the thing as in you were like a shitty person as opposed to like they weren't just like straight manning you. Like they actually that no. wasn't. Yeah, they didn't. So I, I explained my point of view to them two times in that interview. They didn't use any of it. They used a bunch of clips out of context and were just making they themselves were making old people jokes in these episodes. So, the, for example, they would lead into a question by asking me, uh, what do you think of old people having sex? Okay. Hmm. And I would respond, when I think of old people having sex, blah, blah, blah. Like, you know, it's gross and whatever. They would play that, that my answer, my response to that, without the question. And, they, and then Penn would come in with a joke and he would say, aha, so you do think about old people having sex and you probably jerk off to it too, don't you? And I thought, wow. That's such a shitty insult because <laughs> the only way – okay, they're, they're trying to insult me to, to, to suggest that I'm jacking off to old people having sex. The only way that that's an insult is if you also think the idea of old people having sex is disgusting. So they're trying to insult me for insulting old people by then insulting old people. It was, so, it was all over the place. <laughs> no. So I finally, I finally re, uh, made a response video about it on my YouTube channel. Right. Uh, you know, just I think last year. And um, it went viral. And Penn Gillette got a whole, you know, he, he saw it. And he apologized to me. He apologized to me on Twitter. That's I, I don't I only saw the clip of your interview. I didn't see the other stuff with Penn and with Penn talking anything at all. Yeah, if you check out my YouTube, I posted this on my YouTube channel. It's uh, I think it's my take on their bullshit, Penn and Teller's bullshit, my take on their bullshit, or something like that. Uh, if you search for it on YouTube, Maddox Penn and Teller, you'll see my video and the response to it. It's pretty fun. That's pretty great. Yeah, I feel like that happens a lot where people bait. You know, they they give you bait questions, just take sound clips and yeah, they yeah, use it yeah. in whatever yeah. fashion. But they even want. watching it, I was like, that's a bit. Like clearly, you're doing a bit. Yeah, 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 yeah. So, um, that's so funny. Yeah, but it's a bit that he didn't know about. No, <laughs> like, but I'm saying, like, I as like watching you talk, I was like, nobody, like, this is it. This can't be a yeah. real opinion. No, of course not. <laughs> of course not. Like, I, you know, my real opinion. Like, I do believe old people smell. Not all of them, but a lot, a, a large per- percentage of them probably smell because. Right. And I have a, I have an actual theory about this. There, okay, as you get older, <laughs> this is real, guys. This is real. Uh-huh. You get, you, the listener should be taking notes for this shit. This Take is notes. Write this down. So as as you get older, your vision gets poorer, mm-hmm, right? Mm-hmm. That's undisputable. Your hearing gets gets worse. Mm-hmm. That's undisputable. What about your sense of smell? Oh, nobody really thinks about your sense of smell. But guess what, guys? That gets worse, too, as you get older. Mm-hmm. And as your sense of smell gets worse, it becomes deadened and, and uh, less less uh, uh, sensitive mm-hmm. to really strong and pungent smells. So that's why I think that old ladies, there's an old lady smell because they put too much perfume on. They put more perfume on to compensate for the fact that their nose can't smell it as, as uh, strongly as they could. That's my theory. And that is a good theory. It's, it's a, a good, good theory. theory. I yeah. think old. I I think most old men smell like mothballs. Yeah, but maybe that's well. My dad. My dad has a definite funk about him, and mm-hmm. I think it's because he can't smell himself as well anymore. Mm-hmm. That you know, maybe doesn't shower as much and that sort of thing. It's a thing that happens, and there's a word for it too. It's called anosmia. Anosmia is when your sense of smell starts to become deadened, and as that happens, you might overcompensate. Uh, you know, you might, you might, it's, it's just like somebody who, um, who's colorblind might not, n- might not necessarily pick the best colors, you know, to, right, to design right. their decorated room. You know, it's no, it's no <laughs> slight on them, but I'm just trying to explain that that's probably why this concept of old people smell 
comes from. I wonder how much of it has to do, like, for example, my dad, I can only speak to my dad. Mm-hmm. He has, like, a lot of nose hairs coming out and yeah. like, ear hairs. So I think he just doesn't give a shit because you can see those. <laughs> and he's just like, you know what? I don't care. Yeah. yeah. Deal with it. I think when you get old, it's that, like – life to me is very cyclical in a sense like when you're little you don't care about that shit like no one cares about their at least when i was little i didn't care about how i smelled or what i wore and then when you get older you don't give a shit about that either there's like a window of caring yeah there's a window of caring in your life which is from probably like puberty puberty to like 45 Mm -hmm. 50 maybe when you stop getting laid like when you stop getting laid is when you stop caring or you know before before you're ever gonna get laid no one gives a shit Mm -hmm. yeah go out wearing whatever you want got cheeto stains on your shirt who cares girls don't matter to you they're not on your radar you (laughs) haven't hit puberty yet what's a pube and then you (laughs) finally hit pubes you hit puberty you're like oh shit man i'm gonna fucking get that shit together Yeah. Yeah. yeah and then you've had enough I mm-hmm. just got pubes, and I was like, I got to shave these pubes off because <laughs> they're going to see my stuff. All I wanted was pubes when I was little. Then I got them, and I was like, got to clean this up. Yeah. <laughs> so I'm, if I'm guessing, and I'm, and I'm just spitballing here, but the way you generate ideas yeah. is do you just look at the world around you and be like, I don't like that? Yeah. And then you just write about that? Or what do you do to generate – like what's the thought process when you're generating ideas to write about? Oh, man. I have to turn it off at some point. Like there's so much. There's so much. Everything bugs me. Um, like anything – just today I wrote a, a snarky tweet about bees because <laughs> they're, such, they're such fucking lazy animals. They're just the worst. Bees, oh, well, we're all going extinct. Like, they're always crying, you know, bees are going extinct, but they're not even fucking good at anything. And then I got all these shitheads, and, and this, I'm baiting them, right? I got all these, like, losers hitting me up saying, hey, Maddox, um... What are you? What, how are we gonna pollinate the flowers? How are we gonna pollinate? Uh, well, guess what, idiot? They've already solved this problem. Okay, there's this town in China. I think it's called Xiaoqin in in China. In 1992, they had a collapse of a bee colony, and there were no more bees pollinating their fields. Mm-hmm. So they decided, okay, we're having we're gonna have a food crisis if we don't get a, a, the next yield of crops. So they got the townsfolk to take little feathers and little you know chopsticks and things and and put pollen on it and go manually pollinate the flowers. <laughs> And yeah, we that would laugh. never happen in America. <laughs> well, guess what? They're doing it. Um, oh shit! Yeah, and it turns out not only did they did their uh, food crisis not happen, they got thirty to forty percent higher yield that next year. Because it turns out bees are not very efficient at pollinating flowers. Mm. Bees kind of middle around. Bees don't. <laughs> bees don't go out when it's cold outside. Bees like to sleep a lot. Bees always fucking sleep. And then if it's raining, they don't go out and work. But humans, they go out and work whenever the fuck they want. And by the way, humans can get the job done in in way way less time than bees. Bees are. I mean, yeah, great. We don't want them to go extinct. Wham, boo hoo. But. We do a better job than bees because bees are lazy. <laughs> Did anyone make a uh, uh, what would happen to all that sweet gooey honey um, that would go missing? Did no, they we make wouldn't. That counterpoint. Oh yeah. Well, you know. Okay, fine. We we have to find <laughs> figure something out about honeys. Like, I don't know, man. Like meltdown stevia. Yeah, yeah, maybe. Yeah, we got stevia. We got a better. We got a. We man can make better honey. <laughs> I'll fucking. You know, I'll I'm just playing. I'm just looking at the other side of it. That's all I'm saying. I, you know what, I, 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 Jeremiah? Yeah. You know what? We're. I think we're pretty close to having robot bees. <laughs> nice. nice. Have you work. seen? Have you seen um, the Black Mirror? Uh, I've seen one episode. Yeah. 
Oh, the pig, the pig episode? episode? No, I saw the episode oh. where everybody like um, you know rates everyone else. Oh it was, yeah, it was a good episode. That's yeah. a great episode. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Oh, and I did see the pig episode. Yeah, that one. The pig. Yeah. The pig yeah. one's the most everyone has seen the pig. One. And then either they decide to watch them all or to mm. not ever watch again based on the pig episode. The very last episode of Black Mirror is about robotic bees. <laughs> well, Whoa. look who's the visionary. <laughs> they are. <laughs> Thank you, Black Mirror writers. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. So yeah. if you were to talk, so it's. Uh, it's interesting to me because you – so you're an improviser. Yeah. And you're a, a, a comedian and you're also like a person and also – He's also a person. I'm not yes. a person. Oh, okay. You know sorry. I'm saying like a I person and not a person at the same time. Like, yeah. So how do you – if you were to – how do you sort of juggle all the different things? I mean if you're doing – back in the day anyways, you were doing improv. Yeah. You were writing books. Comic books, I believe, right? A yeah, comic book. yeah, I've written a comic book. You huh? were doing all the, I, I believe more than one. Maybe it was just one, but I thought you did several Comic Cons back in the day. Yeah, I still do Comic Con. Yeah. You still do Comic Con. Yeah. How do you sort of, like, if you were going to tell someone, was I want to be the next Maddox, which is a weird. Like, <laughs> Good I want to be the next. I want to be the next George <laughs> Oz. You know, what would you, where would you tell them to start? What would be, like, some guidelines you would give people to sort of be like, well, this is what I did. These are actual, f- tangible things that you can do. Oh man! To okay. Be better. So the first first piece of advice, and this is the most important, is don't just, <laughs> just fucking don't, dude. Like people ask me all the time, like, how do you become a writer? I'm like, don't do it, man. You should, you got a life ahead of you. You still look happy. Don't fucking do it. Like writing is like so grueling and not glamorous. Like yeah, you you see your name on the New York Times bestseller list and whatever, but leading up to it, you have you know sometimes years of frustration and struggle trying to write the book and trying to get to that point okay so outside that first rule don't mm-hmm. second rule is if you do just do it uh there's nothing there's no barrier to entry to becoming a writer and that's why i like you know look there's this big movement right now in hollywood where they're like oh we need to have more women directors and writers and producers and so on and so forth like fine you know what? You want to make that case? Fine. There's no reason why there shouldn't be parody in Hollywood. Everyone should be represented. But there's no gateway. There's no barrier to entry with new media, with YouTube, right? with with, uh, with the new media, with websites, that sort of thing. Everyone can make their own stuff. Yeah, everyone can make their own stuff. Yeah, YouTube doesn't say, no, 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 no. Yeah. You're a woman. Don't do that. Yeah, YouTube, <laughs> YouTube doesn't give a shit. Yeah. It's, the mo- it's the best form of entertainment democracy that there is out there and it's not quite democratic once you get down to the algorithms but the algorithms don't discriminate based on sex the other algorithms care about is your numbers Mm -hmm. so that's all you have to do is just create put your stuff out there and don't have an ego about it if you create some shit and no one's reading it no one's watching it you might have to consider the possibility that it sucks and if it sucks uh you just got to try harder and keep working and keep refining your craft and look everybody's got a voice Mm-hmm. You just have to tap into it. And let me explain what that means because a lot of writers are told their whole lives about voice, right? Mm-hmm. And I've been told that my whole life, and I didn't even understand what it meant until a fan emailed me one day, and he explained to me why my writing resonated with him. Um, and this is what the concept of a voice means. When you read writing, someone else's writing, you, you, you know, when you think, you have your own internal voice, right? You have your Ryan voice. You have your Jeremy voice. Is it Jeremy or Jeremiah? Jeremiah. Jer- Jeremiah, but I keep calling him Jeremy. It's my fault. You yeah. have your Jeremiah voice, and whatever voice that you read, that you think in, right, is your voice. But when you read another person's writing, if their voice is powerful, 
and unique enough and distinct enough, it will super it will override your own internal voice. And that's what the writer's voice means. You find your own point of view and it becomes so strong that it becomes your own voice. Now, journalism, when you go to like a, a website like AP or Reuters, you read a news article, mm-hmm. those are intentionally written to be neutral and dry. You don't want voice when you read a news article. You want neutrality. Right. Mm-hmm. But when it comes to a, a strong point of view and writing, you want to have your own voice, and you want to develop that by creating a point of view and having a perspective on life. Like, for example, just now I ranted about bees. That's what I truly believe. Bees are lazy. Mm-hmm. <laughs> That's my point of view. That's my perspective. Right. So whatever your perspective is, put that down, and um, it's a blessing that we are not that unique. Don't think that you're special. <laughs> Nobody's that fucking special. And, and I'll tell you why that's a blessing. Because if you say something that's funny or it resonates with someone, chances are it's going to resonate with tens of thousands, if not millions of other people. And then all you have to do is find your audience. Or your audience will find you. If you put out work for years. I mean, I wrote my, I started my website in 1997 and didn't get any real traffic until 2002. That's five years of hard work I did that no, almost nobody read. And if I had quit after the first month or two or after the first year, no one would have ever read any of my shit. How much of that – I have two questions, two follow-up questions sure. to that. So one is how much of that when you were the five years – how much of that is fun? Like I see a lot with improv specifically. I see a lot of people that like they love improv for a few months and then they stop and then the good ones continue. Yeah. So how much of that five years that you kept going was actual work and how much of it was fun? Like if you find it tedious, do you think you should work through the tediousness of it or do you think you should find something else? Well, yeah. You, okay, that's a, that's a really good question. If you find it that if you find that the writing has become work or it's tedious for you to do, you're probably doing it for the wrong reasons. Like one almost 100% of the writing that I did was fun for me because I just opened up my text editor and just wrote anything that came to my mind. And I just put it out there, and it was fun for me. Um, there's no other reason to do it because writing doesn't pay. In fact, I didn't even call myself a writer for years. I've been writing for years, and I didn't call myself a writer until I got my first book deal. I don't call myself a writer until you start getting paid for writing. Right. Right. Mm-hmm. Um, you got it. That's what. That's when you have to surrender your ego and say, "Look, I'm not a writer, but I'm but I write. You know, mm-hmm. <laughs> like I I'm right. not a chef, but I make food." Right, you know what I mean? Like yeah. you gotta, you get, you have to put your, you surrender your ego at the door. If you really want to become a writer, and that's what you want to do as a living, you have to take with it the good and the bad. The bad is sometimes it gets lonely. Um, your work, your office becomes your home. Like if you write from home, your home becomes your office, and your office becomes your home. That's a terrible, terrible thing. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, a lot of people. Yeah, you're doing that now, right? Yeah, this is my, this is my home office. I work here. I record podcasts here i edit here he gets kicked out of the bed has to sleep in here everything like i spend so much of my life in this room yeah Yeah. well i'll tell you well one big mistake i made when i wrote the alphabet of manliness and and i i try not to do that anymore is i my in my entire living space had been converted to a workspace so i was doing fulfillment for t-shirts out of my living room i was writing in my second bedroom and then i didn't really sleep i didn't even have a bed I would sleep on the floor or on the couch or I had a big um, purple beanbag. That's all I had in my apartment. And when I'd wake up, I'd wake up where I worked. And when I'd go to sleep, I'd go to sleep where I worked. So there was no separation between work and, and living. 
um, don't do that. This was during yeah, the book. Hard. That was during the book. Oh, okay. And that was one of the most stressful times of my life. I lost hair. I gained weight. I got high blood pressure. How long did Lucky it take you, you to write your... hair back? <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> Fuck you. Yeah. Was that your How mind? long did it take to write the book? From I guess from deal to end. Six months. That was oh, okay. a, that was a six month process, and that was no breaks, no breaks at all. Six yeah. months, the entire six month process, no breaks at all. That was absolutely grueling. And I mean, like holidays, Thanksgiving. New Year's, Christmas, I worked every single day for six months. Were you one of those people that you would, let's say you're working on a chapter, you're working on, let's say the chapter's called Boners, <laughs> you're working on the Boners chapter, <laughs> and uh, do you, you're writing something, are you the kind of person that wakes up at four in the morning, and it's like, oh, that, do you have to get up at four and start working, or do you, can you shut that off for a few hours, finish sleeping, and then go to it in the morning? Oh my gosh, it was, so, like, it would be such a blessing if I got an idea, and I woke up and wrote it down, and that that actually happens a lot now these days. I have all these little scraps and of notes here and there of like different ideas and mm-hmm. articles and thesis and, and things like that. Um, but yeah, if I got an idea, whatever, whenever and wherever inspiration strikes you, you should write. Uh, but then another strategy I would recommend to, to budding writers is not be too precious with your writing. Mm. So I grew up in the era of notebooks, you know, and paper notebooks in school. And paper was a commodity that was, you know, it cost money. And so every time I would write, I would try to conserve the, as much paper as possible. And unfortunately, that kind of translated to my writing when I started writing on my computer, on my desktop. I remember when I was writing Alphabet of Manliness one day, staring at the document, not, you know, just having writer's block and not having anything to say. And I wanted to type something, but I thought, nah, that's stupid. And I thought, well, what am I, why shouldn't I type it? I mean, you should type. Just write anything. If you're writing, it breaks writer's block, no matter what you're writing. Even if it's a, a grocery list, anything. Write something, right? Just write it down. And if it sucks, press enter. You got a new line. <laughs> and I thought, I thought, holy shit. Because I've fallen asleep at my keyboard and woken up with like 200, 300 pages of the letter L. <laughs> I thought, well, what am I being conservative here with? Like, right. I don't. It's need... all free. It's just, yeah. it's just bites. It's imaginary. <laughs> yeah. So... If if you start writing something and it sucks, just hit Control Enter. That's the shortcut to create a new page in Microsoft Word. Uh, do you know that key? Sh- do you know that shortcut, Tweety? Well, I typically write Sketch, so we write in um, Final Draft. I, I I don't use Final Draft. I use um, Writer's Duet. Writer Duet. Ooh, what's yeah. that? It's basically Final Draft. It's Final Draft, but it's online, so you can log in anywhere. I use Keltex. Celtex. Yeah, I, Celtex, I used yeah. to use that. Yeah. But what I like about Writer's Duet. Uh, I guess it's like a pro tip. I don't know. Yeah. Uh, or an amateur tip since it's come for me. Is uh, you write in writer's duet, um, let's say that me and you wanted to write, work on a sketch together. Yeah. We could actually work on it live. Oh, that's cool. Remotely. Yeah, remotely. So you can so be you can wherever yeah, you yeah. want. Shows your name on yeah. it. It's nice. I, and it's free. Those are nice tools. What's yeah. that? It's free. It's free. Yeah. I, or you can buy it. I actually paid for it. Me too. I bought it as yeah. well. But it's, you know, fucking $50, yeah. 40 I did. Bucks. I did sell. I signed, signed up for Celtics just because uh, a project I was working on. They're right. using it. But yeah. Um, and then that, that leads me to the other thing about tools. The tools you use for writing. Mm-hmm. Man, don't make it fancy. Like, you don't need anything. I, here's here's something that's going to blow your guys' minds or maybe some of, some of the listeners. I still use Microsoft Word 2000, Microsoft mm. Office 2000. Interesting. Uh, that's, yeah, that's it's, cool. it's software that's over 16 years old. And guess what? Micro- that's a big secret Microsoft doesn't want people to know is it still works. <laughs> and not only, not only does it work, but it works, I think, in, in some ways better than the modern versions because that program was written and optimized for computers that were only running like Pentium 90s. 
So it, to give you a comparison for today, the computers we're running today are up to 40 to 60 times faster than the computers we had back then, and with 40 to 60 times more memory. So this program was written and optimized for a computer that runs 1 60th as fast as yours. So imagine how fast it runs today. So like playing like a Nintendo cartridge on a PlayStation 4. Yeah, basically. That's exactly what it, yeah. Mm-hmm. So so I'm, I'm using this old, old, old software. And guess, guess what, guys? Other than adding a couple of images, you know, some yeah. clip art and shit in there in your writing, it's still doing the same basic function, which is put words on the page. You don't need all these fancy gimmicks. You don't need fancy software. You don't need a fancy laptop. You can write anywhere. Don't put barriers between you and writing. Just go do it. That's all it takes. I feel like sometimes people create... I know in my past, I've done that. I create kind of fake barriers as a form of like preventing me from doing it. Like Like self-sabotage. Yeah, yeah, self-sabotage. The hardest thing about writing is just sitting down to write. You know, you have so many Mm -hmm. freaking distractions um that for me it's like i once i get going it's super fun it's one of the most like kind of like freeing exercises or artistic endeavors i guess you could say but it's just getting it's like pulling fucking teeth for me is there do you ever feel that way or felt that way is there anything that you do to kind of get you over that hump of like just writing yeah absolutely so one big thing this was a breakthrough i had when i was writing alphabet of manliness Oh, my gosh. I, so I told you earlier, I never took any breaks, right? Mm-hmm. That almost killed me. Um, take breaks. And this is especially important if you're already writing and you feel like you're stuck and you haven't written anything for days. Some days on Alphabet of Manliness, I would only write a sentence or two. And you just sit at your computer all day staring at a screen? Well, I wasn't just staring at the screen. For hours I was, but then I was also fucking around on social media. And Warfish. And, and Warfish. <laughs> yeah, like playing playing video games and stuff online. And I found myself um, spending a lot of time goofing off and not getting work done. But then at the end of the day, even though I spent the whole day goofing off, I felt completely – I felt guilty. I felt drained, I felt exhausted, and I felt terrible. Mm-hmm. And it's and what when you find yourself doing that, it's your body telling you that you need to take a break. And I have uh, since I talked to this uh, friend of mine who who suggested taking at least one or two days off per week, no matter how productive you are or unproductive you are. Mm-hmm. And what you'll find, and this is so this is such a huge, huge, important breakthrough. What I found is that when you force yourself to take time off, even after an unproductive week. All you can think about is work, and you'll you'll want to get back to the computer and write mm. down a little note or write down a little idea, but then you have to fight yourself. You have to have enough discipline to not work. So you have to force yourself to have that time off and not and be disciplined enough not to work during your time off. So at, when you come back that following Monday, yeah, you're ready to hit it, hit the ground running. You're you're yeah. fired up. You have all these ideas. And it will, it will. I promise you, it will come to you after you take a break. You create guilt for yourself, <laughs> yeah, to force yourself to do it. Yeah, yes. because, because yeah. if you're goofing off, you're that's your body telling you you need to take a break, but you don't feel like you took a break because you feel guilty the entire time. Right. That's great. Like that's a really good, actually, really good idea. I think because I do notice that when I, if I'm especially if I'm in, in the middle of a project that I really love, but I'm burnt out, and I go do something like go to a show or go see friends or something at a yeah. barbecue. Either I'm talking about this thing I'm working on, yep. or I'm thinking about the next step, or I just got back from Paris, and man, I'm fucking, I've been working like crazy, yeah. <laughs> because I was, it was weird. You took I, that break. I took that break, yeah. and I really came back, and I was like, man, I got a lot of catching up to do, and um, 
especially with this podcast and all the people listening, um, <laughs> I've put in tons of hours, but, <laughs> but, um, but yeah, so that's cool. Yeah. Now did, when you, when you, your first kind of writing project was the book, did you ever do any comedy writing before that? Like, um, the, well, for the purposes of this show, did you ever write sketch, um, at any point throughout your comedy career? No, that, just my website. Before the alphabet of manliness, it was just my website. And then after, since then, uh, you know, the, first, the actually I started taking classes at UCB, the Upright Citizens Brigade Theater right. in Los Angeles. And the first class I ever took was a sketch writing class. Oh, cool. And oh, that, interesting. Who's your teacher? Colton Dunn. Wow! Yeah, wow! Yeah. Okay. That's pretty cool. Yeah, Colton's a Colton's a, a, a cool dude. Uh, I, you know, I love him to death. But that was the first and last sketch class I ever took. <laughs> <laughs> um, and no, no diss on him. It's just that I thought that writing sketch for UCB was a waste of time. I thought because I, here I was in this class, and I, I don't know. I, this is just my own, my own personal philosophy, right. so I'll just share it, and you may agree or disagree. But I I was sitting in this class and. A lot of times what I, what I saw was eight or ten people were in the room, and we would all give each other notes on our sketches. And some people brought some really brilliant sketches to the class. And uh, what I saw was a committee starting to form of people chiming in to want to say something just so they felt like they were contributing. Yeah. And That still happens. Yeah, still this, happens, yeah, that happens a lot. Yeah. And what happens is it kind of um, dilutes your comedy after a while i don't think it makes it better i think it makes it worse because uh sometimes and there's some people who just don't have a good comedic instinct for that kind of writing so when they're chiming in and giving you advice and notes and and you know telling you what you should change you can only tell somebody no so many times before they start to take it personally and so then egos start to get involved and this and that and then at the end of the day once you finish your sketch where are you putting it up at ucb theater Mm -hmm. in front of an audience of what 120 people i thought Wow, um, and then they want the if the the good sketches they want to take that and then produce it for the web and then put it on their website and this and that. And I thought, well, well, I can do all that myself, and I don't have to have a bunch of bozos chiming in on my on my writing with notes. Like, look, no no diss against uh, against a lot of the writers there. There's some really really talented. Oh people yeah, there. for sure. But uh, it's rare to find someone who you click with in writing and you're able to produce something together without ego. And be able to have the same voice and same opinion, same point of view, and and be able to create a cohesive thing. It's no small feat. In fact, Matt Stone and Trey Parker is a great example. Uh, who does all the writing for South Park? Was it is it Parker? It's 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 the both, that, but it's really it's Trey. Parker. It's the it's one Trey Parker. Yeah, it's really yeah. Trey. The one that doesn't look like Matt Besser. Yeah, that's uh, that's Parker. Okay. Uh, so so Matt Stone, they all sit down and they kind of spitball and they shoot the you know they, they shoot the shit and they get the general concept, the outline of the the episode. Mm-hmm. But then Trey Parker goes and locks himself away and he writes by himself. Yeah, and there's that's... a great uh, uh, Comedy Central did the. Did you ever see that yeah. special? Right, where yeah. they they have you like, know Bill Hader's in the writing room too. They're all pitching ideas and he's Trey Parker's walking around with a marker and he's like you know writing shit on the whiteboard yep. and then he goes away like you said locks himself in he does the prime he does in the like writing, 24 yeah. hours he writes yeah yeah, yeah. yeah. i a think week. that's yeah i think that's uh, that's more along the lines of what how it should be you don't see any of the great books ever written with more than one author credit <laughs> you know you don't yeah. see the great gatsby with like 10 different p- <laughs> writers in a room you know, these are the gatsby writers and they all contributed <laughs> and everybody threw in their own notes yeah. it's got to be one person's vision from start to finish i think more more often than not um, well, and somebody in comedy is subjective too yeah so if i might have an idea that 
is really funny. And if you think like me, yes, you're going to find it super funny. But if you don't <laughs> think like me, which happens a frequently, yeah, yeah, yeah. you're not going to find it as funny. I mean, I, yeah, that's a good point, uh, Tweety. I think that it, it's really important as as a comedian if you want to re, you know cast a big net. Uh, if you want to cast a big net in comedy um, and try to reach as most as many people as possible, you have to throw as much different types of comedy towards them as possible. Some people love slapstick. Some people love satire. Some people love dark humor. Some people love pun jokes. All right. Mm-hmm. In my writing, I try to include a lot of those different types and styles of comedy. Okay. Uh, so, you know, it, it and it, 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 there's going to be a, a, an upper limit to how much you can include. There's going to be a point where um, you're just not going to reach everyone. There's people who are just not going to like your writing, and it's better. It's better that you don't. It's better that you don't reach everybody. If you create something that everybody likes, it's called vanilla. I mean, vanilla, everybody likes vanilla. Literally, the, the the vanilla bean because it's delicious. You know, right. but it's it's um it's non offensive. It's yeah. always there. Mm-hmm. You don't want to be vanilla. Yeah, there's no yeah. uniqueness to it, I guess, in a sense. Like, yeah, there's you, no... you lose your point of view. Yeah, right. yeah, you'll never get you'll never get the Dave Chappelle's of the world. Right. Yeah, and going back that. to like what you say about a sketch, it t- or being in a class, it took me a while to realize, like, uh, maybe I, you know, to like we have a lot of people come in here and then say take it or leave it, which is a good kind of phrase from a teacher, which I like. It's here's an idea. If you like it, use it. If you don't, don't. The problem with having students in a class pitch on ideas when I was first starting out writing, at least sketch comedy that is, I wanted to include everyone's ideas. And then at the end of the day, you have a sketch with a bunch of different points of view. Nothing yeah. fucking makes sense. Yeah. None of it's like – and then it's not yours anymore. Right. Like there's no – it's almost like I would rather my sketch come from my point of view and be bad and then just fucking toss it and go on to the next sketch than have it muddled with – you know things that i don't personally like or agree yeah you have to it, it's rare to find that person where and i'm not saying don't get notes you should definitely get notes from yeah. your friends and whoever you trust but it's rare to f- find that person where they can give you notes and if you reject their notes they don't take it personally right mm-hmm. you need to for you you need to be a good note taker and a good note giver uh if you want to really get into the sketch world i'll tell you the type of sketch that i think really works um just in the new media and youtube world uh and this is a sketch that i basically wrote it's a sketch uh, uh, for myself is um, my campaign for the regressive party. So if you, <laughs> if you I created this regret, this party called the regressive party a long time ago, where I wanted to take away rights of people. And it's an, it's an actual political party. It's my political party. Mm-hmm. I got, uh, I, I ran, this was the first year I was eligible to run for president and I did run. And uh, I'll have, you know, I got several votes. Uh, several people, several <laughs> <laughs> so more than one but do, less than less than probably less than 20 but more than one definitely okay. i got do they paper. do they tell you how many you get no but uh no. people took pictures of their ballots with my, oh. my name my name written in nice. yeah they broke the law <laughs> <laughs> well like uh, once i'm president there will be yeah uh, that law will get you're gonna shot. take that away as yeah, well. i'm gonna take away their right to vote um yeah. <laughs> <laughs> uh, first order of yeah. business I mean, this, my slogan is, I'm against abortion, 
before killing babies. Uh, so, you know, I want to, I want there to be more dead babies. I just don't want women to have the, the right to choose to, to choose to do that. But um, so anyway, like that was my <laughs> so that that's my campaign. That's my so I wrote that and uh, it was all it was all my own point of view, my own mind. But when I shot it, uh, the director chimed in. He said, "Oh, you maybe you could try this. Maybe you could try that." Well, you know, I wasn't opposed to it. But at the end of the day, it was my vision and my point of view that I put down on the paper. Um, it didn't have a, it wasn't written by committee. I hate writing by committee. Yeah. Here's a great a great example of sketch on YouTube. Have you guys heard of five second films? Yeah. Oh my god. I haven't. No. These guys, yeah. this, some of the most brilliant sketches I've ever seen. So essentially, the conceit of the entire website, five second films back in the days, they thought, let's try to tell a, a, a story in five seconds, which seems like it might be impossible if you've never seen it. But five seconds is an incredibly long amount of time for you to tell a story. And some of their sketches are so incredible. It's just basically uh, set up punchline. Yeah, yeah, basically. Um, I, I teach workshops sometimes about writing and and you know uh, sketch writing and new media and all that kind of stuff. And I, I tell them I always show five second films <coughs> because um, it comes from the Mitch Hedberg school of thought. All right, I think I saw Mitch Hedberg a long time ago do an interview with someone, and he said uh, comedians are always asking for more time. Give me five minutes. Give me seven minutes. Give me ten minutes. He said I just want one minute. Give me one minute. And they and, he, and his philosophy on it is was this. He said, if you can go out there and tell one joke that will make the audience laugh, walk off on stage, you'll be a fucking hero. Mm-hmm. And I, I've taken that to heart. Yeah. Leave them wanting more. Leave them wanting more. But also, you've done your job. You made them laugh. Get the fuck off stage. Don't <laughs> don't keep talking. Because mm-hmm. at the end of the day, you know, it's the quality that matters. You never go to a comedy club and you see a comedian tell a hundred jokes, and you, you come out thinking, huh. That comedian told a hundred jokes. Can you believe that? A hundred jokes. We should we should watch that guy again. No, no one cares about the hundred jokes he told. They're going to remember the one or two that made them laugh. Right, and that's yeah. it. Yeah, which is that's and that's if that's actually be a great philosophy for improv. Yeah, which, and you did so. You were this sort of ties back in what you're just talking about about working with specific kinds of people. But you were on an, a very successful. They didn't call them indie teams back then, but it was an indie team. Yeah, called Fancy Schmancy. Yes, who I thought was a Herald team. We were talking about this earlier. Oh yeah, yeah. I because I the man. There's a guy from Iowa on that team. Yeah, it was great. Yeah, um, Deba Deborah Terica was Tarika, on that. Yeah, Tarika uh-huh. was on that team. Yeah, it's a great team, and you loved that team. You guys love were friends. Them. Yeah, you guys went. I remember you guys went to someone's wedding from that team together. Like, several. I went to several of their weddings. Yeah, and then I you were on a Herald team. Mm-hmm. I actually never heard of. Yeah, Lincoln's Bedroom. I was on a Herald team. We lasted about a year, uh, which is, I think, the minimum amount of time that you, that a Herald team can last. We weren't – I wouldn't say that we were one of the greats. We definitely had great shows. Um, this was out in L.A.? Yeah, it was in L.A., UCB. UCB Theater. I was on okay. a Herald team out there, out, out here. Um, and it was it was fun while, while it lasted, but uh, I got to be honest, like – the the Herald experience is one that's not of your own like your your team is not of your own choosing. So the chemistry that either exists or doesn't exist is sometimes entirely arbitrary based on the mm-hmm. decisions that are made by the theater heads. Right. Whereas Fancy Schmancy, my independent group, were just a bunch of my friends and we all just kind of palled around and we loved each other and we hung out all together all the time. Whereas my uh, Herald team, um, you know, I liked everyone on the team. Everyone was great. But we didn't really have that same kind of chemistry where we hung out together and we, you know, just went to each other's weddings and things like that. So it's uh, it's a different experience. And so that's – I guess so that sort of speaks to this idea of if you're going to get notes, 
And I mean, maybe being on a sketch team is different than writing a book or writing for YouTube or something like that. But having a sketch team of people, or I guess for a writer, for you, for like a, someone that writes a book, having a group of people that you trust that are your friends is more valuable than going to like a focus group. Um, a fo- okay, focus groups can help for sure. Okay. Um, when you when you reach out to strangers because they don't like you. Uh, okay. You know. That's, yeah. So you're gonna get some straight, some straight beef. But right. here's where here's the important type of uh, uh, friend to have when it comes to notes. First of all, don't just turn to your comedian friends if you're writing sketch. Oh yeah. I, some of the best notes I've ever received from my writing have come from friends who are accountants and lawyers and you know have day jobs. Because they're not worried about the formula or the structure. No, they're just looking to be entertained. And if yeah. they find that it's boring, they'll tell you. And that's those are the friends you want to keep your closest. Uh, your closest allies as a writer is to find those critical friends of yours who give it to you straight. Now, I have I have friends who pretty much hate everything I do, uh, <laughs> and and I love I love getting their opinions because um, I adjust the feedback based on how what I know about them. Like for example, one of my friends in Utah pretty much hates everything I, I produce, and if he if I give him something and he comes back to me with anything that's even remotely neutral, right? Because usually he's critical. If he's neutral, I'm like, oh my gosh, I hit gold. This is amazing. Uh, you know, because he's not criticizing it. But if I get another friend, I have another friend who loves everything I do, and then I have to adjust downward. I, th- I say, okay, well they like this, but they're not super enthusiastic, so it's probably not that great, and so mm-hmm. on. Mm-hmm. So you know, adjust your adjust your scale based on the friend, <laughs> and get those critical friends, those friends who are not afraid to criticize you. Man, they're they're gold. Their opinion's golden. I need to. Reach out to more friends, I guess, in my workplace because all my friends are comedians. Yeah, I uh, know that's yeah. a, that's a good point. I admit, I always ask Jeremiah. I'm like, no, funny. no, don't uh, don't just turn to your comedian friends. I, I definitely I intentionally turn to my friends who are not comedians because I feel like they give you notes and a perspective that uh, you won't necessarily see. You ask right. a stand up comic, hey, what do you think of this joke? Well, he's going to give you his opinion as a stand up comic with years of experience. Right. Who's probably heard that joke before or something similar. So they're like, eh, it's okay. Try changing this. Try changing that. Right. But if you ask a normal person who's going to be the majority of your audience, their their opinion, their feedback is going to be super valuable. Okay. Do you have if you if you were to give um, we're 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 hitting that golden hour. If we were gonna if you were gonna give one piece of advice to aspiring writers, what would be like the main thing you would tell people? Oh, geez. Um. So other than taking breaks. Oh, you know what? We we just kind of glossed over this earlier. I mentioned finding your audience or oh, having yeah. your audience find you. Mm-hmm. Okay. That is almost as important as the writing itself. You I, I don't give a shit if you've written the next, you know, the next Shakespearean play or the next New York Times bestseller if no one can read it. No mm-hmm. one's going to read the words that are under your bed in your journal. No one's going to read the words that are in your head. You not only have to put it down on the paper, on the page, but you then have to make it available to people so people can read it. Um, it's no small feat. Like you, ha- it's not enough to be a writer these days. If you want to be a successful writer, you got to be a marketer, and then you have to have a little bit of business acumen. You have to know how to sell yourself. You have to know how to. And what I mean by that is not being a sellout. A, a sellout is someone who compromises his or her principles for money. That's what a sellout is. Okay. So if you have your principles. And you say these are my these are my my rules and my principles. These are the lines I won't cross. Don't cross them, and you won't be a sellout. But what I mean by selling yourself is presenting yourself in a way that is palatable for the general public. So how how are people finding your your writing right now? Do you have a, a medium.com account? 
Do you have a live journal? Is live journal even a thing anymore? Do you have a, do you have a Tumblr? Mm, you know, do, do you have a Facebook page? Like, how are people finding your writing? And 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 spend time looking at your analytics. Look at your numbers. Where are people coming to your website from? First of all, if you're publishing on Tumblr, that right there tells you a little bit about the type of audience you can expect to receive at your blog. You know, know your audience. You mm-hmm. have to know your audience. Mm-hmm. And then once you know your audience, you need to publish in a place that your audience will find you. If you want YouTube people to find you, publish on YouTube. If you want Tumblr people to find you, do your homework and find out who reads Tumblr. Who are those people? Who is, who's the audience? Who are the people who are sharing this content? How old are they? Are they young? Are they old? Are they female? Are they male? If you're starting to write some horror slash fiction that that you think that only men are going to be appealed to, are you going to want to publish that on Pinterest, where it's a platform that's primarily visited by women and me and 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 Ryan? <laughs> um, you need to know your audience and publish where they can find you and make it as easy as possible for them to find your your material and share it. That's how you grow your audience. Okay, that's great advice. I have Thanks. a question. Okay. One more question. Yeah. If it's okay. Sure. Is it okay? Yeah, it's fine. Jeremiah, that's permission. <laughs> you're you're at, also I'm, a host of this podcast. I'm looking at Tweety. Well, I don't know how long. I can't see the time that we're at right now. An hour and three minutes. Okay, cool. Yeah, we got one. So has there ever been a point in your uh, writing career where you, uh, I guess it's like the state of comedy, I, I, I would think right now, at least it feels like to me, it's it's very sensitive. Like there's certain yeah. things that you can push right now. But as a writer, I guess in my brain, like I always want to um, like push, push the boundaries of what I can get away with. Is there, are there times in your, you know, your career where you've been like, ah, oh, man, maybe that's too much and dialed back. Or, or do you have the mentality to be like, fuck it, I'm going to just put it out there and then I'll deal with the repercussions as it comes. Like how much do you, uh, like check yourself when it comes to your your comedic writings. Oh, that's a good question. Now I'm I'm I feel like I'm fortunate enough to know where that line is and not to cross it. There's a big there's a difference between controversial and crass. Um, there have been almost every time I publish something, I feel like I shouldn't do it. I feel like I shouldn't <laughs> I shouldn't say this thing. I shouldn't publish this thing. And I, there have been times where uh, you know I, I would turn to. Uh, someone I was, uh, you know, one of my friends in the room or a girl I was dating, and I, I, I'm just about to press enter to publish this article that I wrote. And I turn to them, I say, I'm going to lose fans over this. And, you know, they look at me and they're like, well, do you really want to do that? I'm like, absolutely. <laughs> publish. Enter. You yeah. publish that shit. And you need to know your your tolerances and the, the difference, again, between crass and controversial. It's crass to come out and say something offensive just for the sake of saying something offensive. When you say something that's controversial, on the other hand, it's something that people can debate and dispute. Uh, like, for example, I'll give you a perfect example. This is something that that I legitimately con- uh, uh, thought about before I published. Um, I wrote this article a long time ago called Christopher Reeve is an Asshole. Uh, (laughs) (laughs) So right out the gates, you know, very controversial. And the thesis of this article was essentially this. I said, look, Christopher Reeve didn't give a shit about paralyzed people until he became paralyzed. Mm -hmm. Why, Why are we heralding him as this hero or this savior, this champion? Because essentially he's what he's doing is selfish. He's trying to find a cure for something that he got. He didn't care before. If he really was 
a, a, a virtuous and, and uh, generous and magnanimous person, he would have probably cared about paralyzed people in spite of not being paralyzed himself. Should we then, so the thesis was this, should we, should we only care about illnesses when a celebrity becomes ill, right? Mm. I got so much backlash for this article after he died. After he died, it turns out, uh, if you search for Christopher Reeve on Google, the number two result was my website, <laughs> calling him an asshole. So when I, I got so much hate mail, and you know everybody was attacking me. Oh, I bet. And I so then I I doubled down. I changed. I said I changed the article, the header of the article. And I said, guys, in light of uh, the recent passing of Christopher Reeve, it's inappropriate that I called this article Christopher Reeve is an asshole. And I just crossed out the word is and changed it to was. <laughs> Which Man. only pissed yeah. people off even more. So I got contacted by a lawyer for the Chris- oh. from the Christopher Reeve Foundation. Oh, and this guy was like, you, you got to take this shit down. And I said, no, uh, I think it's important that everywhere around the internet right now, people are debating this article and the merits of, my, of what I said. And whether or not you, you, um, you agree or disagree... Uh, this is an important conversation that America is having right now, and I'm glad that they're having it, and I've, I've spurned this conversation. What I'm willing to do voluntarily is to redirect people. If they're coming from Google to my website, I will put up a splash page and say, look, if you're looking for the Christopher Reeve uh, uh, Foundation, you've come to the wrong place. Go here. And otherwise, please be warned. If you if you uh, continue, proceed at your own caution that you're going to read some controversial opinions. Mm-hmm. I voluntarily did that. And then he wrote back to me, the lawyer, and he said, you know what, Maddox? We disagree with your methods, but we agree with your message. Uh, and let me go. Mm-hmm. He just let me off the hook. Because all of a sudden he was getting a billion people going to their, their fucking page. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah I mean, <laughs> they were checking the, those so statistics. He, so he basically yeah. did what you were talking about, which was he was mad until it benefited him. <laughs> the lawyer he actually seen, he the the sense that i got from this lawyer was that he was a kind person uh and he was not out to you know harass or get anyone he just he was like look this is shitty take it down right and i told him look man i get it if you want people to go to the foundation i'm willing to do that voluntarily you know he didn't ask me to do that and um he was like yeah i actually agree with this message we should start paying more attention to illnesses not just when celebrities get them. Not when it's just become a, a trend with an ice bucket challenge. You know, we shouldn't just care about people who have Parkinson's only after Michael J. Fox gets Parkinson's. Yeah. yeah. Well, what would have been great is if he cared about uh, those people beforehand. And right. And then also... Well, I mean, that would be great. <laughs> what I'm saying is, it would, it would, right? Yeah, that article then wouldn't be, uh, wouldn't, would, it, would be would a it, non-factor. Yeah, would right. He would have been truly altruistic. He would have been, he would have been truly right. altruistic. I think, yeah. I think, true altruism comes from. Well, there's that's a whole philosophical debate, right. but we're getting, yeah, that's we're going down that rabbit hole. Yeah. yeah. Um. So, th- first of all, thank you so much for coming yeah, on. Yeah, thanks, thanks so much, guys. Yeah. Like, thank you so so much. This has been great. Um. It's nice to have something a little bit different on here for a change, and like actually. Maybe learn about the making money aspect of writing as oh, opposed man. to yeah. just doing the live theater part of it, which is also great. They're both great. Yeah. I um, mean, but like you said, don't do it for money, motherfuckers. Right. Do it for love. Yeah. If you're not enjoying it, why are you doing it? Yeah. You know, I read this uh, – again, I, this, uh, quick little quote, but I read this quote a long time ago. It said that uh, 
writers write not because they have to, but because they want to. Like if you if you're writing because you have to and you feel like it's a it's a chore. And by the way, I know it sounds like it was a chore to write that book. It was only because I had a, a huge, huge Dead, deadline. Deadline, yeah. of course. And that's and I think that that's something that changes with a lot of stuff. You know, I yeah. mean, acting's all fun and dandy until all of a sudden. I'm sure – well, I wouldn't know, but I'm sure that, like, for someone that's getting paid a shit ton of money, they got a month yeah. to learn a 200-page script, you know? Yeah, yeah. Honestly, the only type of writing I hate is uh, Twitter. I I, <laughs> I hate twi- I hate posting shit on Twitter. It's such a pain in the ass. The constraints don't make me more creative. They make me more frustrated because <laughs> there are just li- – there are words that I I'm, – I'm pretty efficient with my words when I write. And uh, even with my efficiency, I'm unable to communicate certain ideas on Twitter because of the stupid fucking character limitation. And you refuse to write you are for your? No, I won't do it. <laughs> <laughs> um, so the way we usually in these, we used to in these podcasts by doing three line scenes, and then that was horrible. Yeah, that okay. ended that ended very poorly. Very poorly every time. Yeah, so, so we, we have a much better. Yeah, it's yeah. where we put our guests on the spot and we ask you to come up with the tagline for the week for our show: "Fish out of water, blank." Fish out of water. The tagline for this week's episode. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. <laughs> All right. Fish. Fish out of water. Become a math major. <laughs> awesome. Thanks so much, man. Thanks, you got man. It. Thanks yeah. for having me. Cheers. This has been a Boardwalk Audio podcast. For more information and shows, visit BoardwalkAudio.com. Don't forget to rate and subscribe now.